It's interesting, this, this afternoon, I always notice it in these retreats, this last part where we have been spending this time primarily really connecting with this inner life and, and what it's like to dip in to connecting with each other. And because there's so much more presence, we notice so much more about um, both the warmth the warmth that comes up, and also the habits. Do you notice some about your habits? Yeah, it just pops back up into the universe again. One of my very favorite uh, lines from Zen Master Dogen is, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. And so last night, Jack spoke so wonderfully about enlightenments and the natural next kind of exploration is really how to live these experiences of awakening uh, in our lives, in our own bodies and hearts, and then with each other and onward. So it's really a living dharma. A couple of months ago, on one of the uh, Discovery Channel shows in one of the nature series, there was a wonderful program on elephants, and some of you might have seen it. It was about how horribly humans have violated elephants over the last century, transporting them to circuses and zoos, and mistreating and manhandling them, really isolating them. And they're very, very social creatures, as you might know. So it's, uh, it's a real violation. And in one Louisiana zoo, there was an elephant named Shirley who had been there for 25 years. And she was the only elephant, and she never saw any other elephants for all those years. And finally, she was old, so they had to get rid of her. And as it turns out, there's a woman in Tennessee who's bought hundreds of acres just for the purpose of when elephants get old so they have somewhere to go. Isn't that a great bodhisattva act? <laughs> I love that. And it's these, all these acres, the elephants are free just to wander around, and they get cared for. And Anyway, so Shirley was transported there, and um, she was kept in her cage for a bit because they were a little worried about how she'd interact with the other elephants because she hadn't been social for so long. So one by one, the elephants came up to greet her, the kind of welcoming, you know, they visited her with her, and nothing seemed to be a problem. But then one particular female elephant went up to the cage, and, and she and Shirley got tremendously excited, and they started trumpeting and coming up on their rears, and they, went, and they widened the metal. They were so excited about each other. They were so um, thrilled to see each other. And as it turns out, this other elephant had been with Shirley in a, zoo, in a circus 25 years earlier. And... Um, And once they let Shirley out of her cage, these two just were inseparable. And for the rest of their lives, you you saw these two aging souls just wandering, very fulfilled with each other. It It had a really nice ending to it. Feeling connected is really feeling happy. Um, It's because it's the realization of who we are. And we know it deep down. We intuit that we belong, that we're a part of the whole. 
and yet we get so afraid of each other and afraid of our lives that, that we forget. So when we touch connectedness in any way, with each other, with nature, when we get intimate with our inner life, there's a certain quality of happiness. It's the happiness of being more real. On the bodhisattva path, and the bodhisattva path is the path of awakening beings. The resolve is to realize our non-separation and to live from it in all ways. That's the center piece of the bodhisattva path. And we're all on this bodhisattva path. I mean, every one of us is here waking up, our hearts and minds. And each one of us has that care that we discover that freedom and that awakening with each other and in our lives. And we can see here, so many talk to in these interviews through the week, how when there's the moments of enlightenment, of freedom, there really is a sense of intimacy with our inner life. Those moments of freedom, we're connected, and we feel a sense of belonging. It might be in the woods with the natural world, and a sense of togetherness here. And we've noticed how when we begin to suffer, we feel that sense of really being an isolated self that's wanting or an isolated, fearing self, our angry self. Spiritual life is an ongoing cycle, if you want to say, of forgetting and remembering. It happens millions of times a day. You've seen it here. It's just, retreats are wonderful to shine a light on that, to see this, this way that we kind of go to sleep and, and start thinking that we're less than we are, and then arrive again. The Dalai Lama once remarked, and I don't know where it was this happened, but he said, I don't know why people like me so much. He said, it must be because I value bodhicitta. Now that's the awakened heart-mind. He said, I can't claim to practice, but I value it. (laughs) Now, I don't know. (laughs) But I love it because it's so human and reassuring. I mean, it reminds us that even when we feel most disconnected, even when we feel numb, or we're doing the metta and our hearts feel really hard and cold, even when we're angry, there's still some place in us that cares about caring. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's this thread that can link us back to what's really true. It's okay that we forget, we fall asleep, because the truth is we do care, and there's a part of us that knows that. When we feel the fullness of caring, we feel most aligned with who we are. I know for myself that when my heart is awake with caring, I just feel most real. It feels most real. Now, on the bodhisattva path, the awakening beings, uh, in a formal way, have an aspiration that is very powerful in helping to remember when we forget. And I think of this aspiration as having two parts to it. 
And the first part is, may whatever circumstances arise serve to awaken this heart and mind. No matter what's going on, may this serve to awaken compassion, wisdom. And the second related part of the aspiration is, may this life be of benefit to all beings. And the language I'm using is not the exact language in the Mahayana scriptures, but it's, it's that spirit of wanting to be of benefit to others. And even if we don't use this kind of language in our inner aspiration, we each, especially as we become more and more present, know that's what we want. We know that whatever's going on, we want to wake up. And as we wake up, we know that we care and we want to help others. It's just a part of who we are. This is Rilke. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it. The image of widening circles is my favorite kind of metaphor for the bodhisattva path because it has that sense of more and more inclusiveness, that we're including more and more of this life in our hearts. So I'd like to kind of explore a bit and reflect together on how we widen the circles of compassion. And as we've been doing here, the first circle is really this embracing of our inner life, because we cannot embrace our world unless we genuinely have accepted and brought kindness to what's within us. Thomas Merton says, Of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon, if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all journeys, and without it, All of the rest are useless. So we cross the abyss by just the practices we're doing here, by having that intention to relate to the grief that comes up, or the fear, or the restlessness, or the sleepiness or judgment, to relate to it with presence, to say, okay, this too. And yet, it's not our habit, as you know, in life. And we started at the retreat really describing how our reflex, and we see this very quickly as we get back into the stimulation of the world, um, when something difficult comes up, it's so quickly, so quickly, to not want it, to want life different, to feel like we are either needing something more or that what's here is wrong. And it's interesting, as we're about to go into uh, our world, our, each of our own lives, um, to see how that already arises with the kind of fantasy about how it can be. And part of that's quite wholesome, you know, to sense what's possible, and also the grasping and the attachment, and to watch that. Something needs to be more and better. And then, of course, the flip side, our, our fears and worries about what can go wrong, what might not happen. 
One of my favorite uh, little stories is of a Jewish mom who sends her son a telegram, and it says, start worrying, details to follow. (laughs) You know, the word worry is from the Anglo-Saxon root, and it means to strangle or to choke. I just found that out. Chogyam Trungpa describes us as a bunch of tense muscles protecting our existence. You know, we we kind of steal against what can go wrong. So these habits are deeply ingrained. And um, I was remembering how last September about, oh, we had a retreat down in the Blue Ridge Mountains about two weeks after September 11th. And for those of you that are from New York, as you know, and some of you are from the D.C. area, those particular areas, very biological fear of another attack coming. I had a number of people in our meditation community that worked in the Pentagon. Um, Some had friends that were badly injured. A lot of fear. So we had this retreat, and... Again, as so many people noticed, the feeling of shared vulnerability brought up a real beautiful kind of closeness between people. And it also brought up a kind of sense of a fear. So there was a kind of relief that, oh, good, we're going to a retreat out of the city, into the mountains. There was, a, there was a relief with that. Well, on the first day at this retreat, uh, a woman went into this little sanctuary in the woods right by the main center that we have. And you take off your shoes and go in. And she was meditating, and she came out, and one of her shoes was missing. So she put on the other shoe, and she kind of started hopping around, and then she noticed about four yards away a bear who was holding her shoe and eating it. (laughs) Well, the bear freaked out when he saw her drop the shoe and ran, and so she had this slathered-over shoe. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, it was like, but it really rattled the sense of safety of, you know, and, and then the managers of the retreat said, yeah, we've been noticing some bears coming and going. They haven't bothered anyone yet, <laughs> you know. The day after that, we were, you know, it was during walking meditation, and 500 feet above the ground, fighter jets started zooming over. This is a very secluded area, but it's right by, it's within a few hundred miles of Norfolk uh, military base. So they were using this as a path for doing their training flights, and they were doing it all through the day. So here we had kind of gotten away from the, the horror into another horror, and then the week went on, and then it was just the inner dramas that are every bit as much what plague us. We can't get away. There's no way we can manage what's going on in this world or our inner world. Basically, we can't fight the truth of impermanence. There's no refuge from it. And yet, we spend huge amounts of our time trying to plan and worry and fix and manage. This is what I read to the group after the bear episode. The Colorado State Department of Fish and Wildlife is advising hikers, hunters, fishers, and golfers to take extra precautions and keep alert for bears while in Dillon, Beckenridge, and other areas. 
They advise people to wear noise-producing devices, such as little bells on their clothing, to alert but not startle the bears unexpectedly. They also advise the carrying of pepper spray in case of an encounter with a bear. It is also a good idea to watch for fresh signs of bear activity. People should recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear droppings. (laughs) Black bear droppings are smaller and contain berries and possible squirrel fur. (laughs) Grizzly bear droppings have little bells in them and smell like pepper spray. So much for managing things, right? (laughs) So the basic sanity of it all is we do what we can, but basically (laughs) there's a certain amount we just let go of. On the bodhisattva path, the understanding is this very moment, these very emotions, are perfectly designed to nourish our freedom. And that's the understanding that can seem most elusive when we're in the grip, when we're at war with what's happening, that this exactly right now has built into it exactly what we need to really be free, just right this moment. We can see it in the broad sweeps of our life when we look back Each of us can kind of look at the landscape of our lives and notice that those times when we were really challenged, when we had the big losses, the divorces, the other really major griefs, the failures in business, with friends, that to the degree that we faced what was going on, it really allowed us to become more tender and more wise. Life tenderizes. It does it when we pay attention. So the bodhisattva's aspiration is really powerful because it's really this uh, deep prayer that whatever is happening may serve awakening. And I know in my own life when I hit, hit an edge, when I feel like in some way I am failing my son, which is always the one that plagues me, being an imperfect mother, which I am, <laughs> when I feel like I'm letting down somebody, when I hit a real, you know, batch of insecurity about writing or whatever it is, um, I do stop and use this prayer. I really say, okay, may this serve to awaken. And most of me is wishing away the experience. So I'm just acknowledging that. Even as I say that, it's like I wish it wasn't happening. But again, there's this sense that just by articulating the prayer, the place in me that really does want to wake up is aroused, and it gives me more encouragement to become present again. What we've been doing all week really is living from the wisdom of that aspiration, really trying to let the moments, whatever they're presenting, be what we pay attention to. I mean, that's been our intention, and and as so many of you have described in the times that 
it's intense, and we stay there. And we in some way have that intention to be friendly. There is an awakening of kindness, of space, that happens. It's sometimes described as the heart being a transformer of sorrows. That life happens, and when we meet it with our heart and our presence, it awakens us. Now, what happens when these circumstances feel like too much? When the abyss is too great? I had one student at a retreat I taught several years ago who had heard these instructions to be tender with whatever came up. And she described meditating and having a huge, huge amount of fear come up and feel completely knotted and gripped by it and then hear the instructions, okay, be friendly with your fear, meet it with friendliness, compassion, kindness. And then she'd hear a child's voice screaming out, raging, screaming through her brain, I can't do this alone, I won't do this alone, raging through her brain. So that's what she came into the interview with. You know, she's, and she, I guess she expected for me to give her another angle on um, how to be present. And... Um, Mostly we talked about how there are times that we really can't do it alone and that we do need to reach out. And for her, over, and as it's turned out over the months, it's really made a difference to, to bring this up in a spiritual friends group. It's called the Kalyanamitta group, where she, she brings her fear into the group and people are with her. Really wonderful way to do it. And I talked to her about... Um, what I had heard with the Dalai Lama, when a man came to him and said pretty much the same thing, this fear feels like too much. And the Dalai Lama, rather than giving him a meditation, you know, to be mindful or whatever, said, just imagine that you're sitting in the lap of the Buddha, and the Buddha's holding your fear. I told her about that, and that's more where her practice went. When we feel very small and isolated, when the abyss is really so great that it's hard to find that connectedness with our inner life, we need a pathway to remembering our belonging. During the atrocities that accompanied the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, thousands of bewildered suspects were randomly arrested rounded up, stripped naked, and shot one by one in the back of the head. One eyewitness account captures the depth as well as the poignancy of our need to feel linked, to feel joined together. Most of the victims usually requested a chance to say goodbye, and because there was no one else, they embraced and kissed their executioners. It's absolutely primal, this need to feel belonging. We need to feel the truth of who we are. And when we feel separate, we need a way to it. Now, I had a misunderstanding about Buddhism in my early days, which was that um, it was dualistic to reach out to some sense of um, protection or being or a kind of something bigger than myself. And yet I found that whenever I felt really, really stuck, 
like really overwhelmed with, with grief or with fear, that I called on Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And my way of doing it was, you know, I'd kind of call out, I'd just say, okay, beloved, please hold this. And I'd imagine a field of radiant, loving awareness surrounding me. And I just feel it surrounding me and holding me. And then as I'd relax and let go, it became completely clear that there was no field out there. It was just this loving awareness that's who I am. And so I'd become, in those moments, the holder and the held. The place in me that was completely afraid would feel held. But there's also this sense of, of having that greatness. But I first needed to reach out for belonging. Now, what I've realized over the years is that's just taking refuge in the Buddha. I mean, really, experientially, what does it mean to take refuge in Buddha nature? Taking refuge implies finding something that's dependable, that's safe in the most profound way, because it's true. And what's dependable and true is our awakened nature loving awareness. And so, in taking refuge, we can sense an embodiment or a manifestation of that. And if we really, with our heart, call on it and give ourselves to that, we discover it's who we are. We each need a way. Many people find that through nature they feel that um, sense of really an easy path to belonging. Most of us through loved ones, like Shirley, that that does it. That gives us the capacity to then cross the abyss and hold our inner life. Some with the Divine Mother, Bodhisattva of Compassion. This is what Rilke says. I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now. Into them I place these fragments, my life. So once we feel some sense of belonging, we can hold our inner life, we can connect with, be intimate with our inner life. So this is the first part, may all circumstances awaken. Whatever arises, may we find a way to connect with and bring presence to it right here and now. Now how do we widen the circles? How do we begin to include other beings in the same way? And it really is the same practice, to see what's true, to be able to see another and really see who's there, and hold with care. It's the same two wings of, of seeing and compassion. This is a story from After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. One old ascetic rabbi asked his pupils how they could tell when the night had ended and the day had begun, for that is the time for certain holy prayers. Is it, proposed one student, when you can see the animal in the distance and tell whether it is a sheep or a dog? No, answered the rabbi. Is it when you can clearly see the lines on your own palm? And another? Is it when you can look at a tree in the distance and tell if it is a fig or a pear tree? 
No, answered the rabbi each time. Then what is it, demanded the pupils. It is when you can look on the face of any man or woman and see that they are your sister or brother. Until then, it is still night. So we leave retreat with some sense of resolve to find more intimacy and more connection with the beings in our life. We want to look at each other, the people we don't know so well and the people we know really well, and sense that here we are together. That, that togetherness is beautiful. And our challenge is that we face that same conditioning we do within ourselves, that we find we're afraid of each other. And it's true. There's this fear that in some way this self will be seen as unappealing or unlovable or too much. And we have these wants that make it hard for us to to just be with each other. And we have these ideas about who the other is in the same way that we have limiting ideas about our inner being, who we are, we have limiting ideas about each other. I think of it as the trance of the unreal other, that the other's not quite real because of these fears and these wants. And we filter people through these ideas of of who they are. And on some levels, it's the way a person appears or what race they are or what age they are or what gender they are. We have these ideas. And you can see here, being with each other, how it's easier to, to let go of those because there's more presence. But when we get tight and small, we go back to some old filters that make assumptions about who people are. Better than me, worse than me, not my type. It flips in really quickly. The more in daily life that we get self-centered, the more everybody we are with is either an ally, somebody that can do something for us, or a neutral person who's kind of irrelevant, we're not interested, or else troublesome in the way. It's interesting. Now this is a story that's been passed around about somebody leaving a retreat and having good intentions and so on, but she had to travel a bit and she had a whole lot of luggage, so she went to an airport and, and dumped all her luggage in one, one area, bought a cup of coffee and a small package of cookies. Then she staggered with all her luggage to a little table that was unoccupied. And she was reading the morning paper when she became aware of someone rustling at her table. From behind her paper, she was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed young man helping himself to her cookies. She didn't want to make a scene, so she leaned across and took a cookie herself. A minute or so passed, more rustling. He was helping himself to another cookie. By the time they were down to the last cookie in the package, she was very angry, but she couldn't bring herself to say anything. Then the young man broke the cookie in two, (laughs) pushed half across to her, ate the other half, and left. Now, sometime later, when she was the public address system called her to present her ticket, she was still fuming. Can you imagine her embarrassment when she opened her handbag and was confronted by her package of cookies? She had been eating his. (laughs) 
So we lock into these ideas of who is this person and what they're doing. We lose it. We spend a lot of time, and we're not proud of it, but we have a lot of strategies for distancing from each other. We have a lot of ways of making excuses, not getting so close in. One of the best I heard, former Postmaster General J. Edward Day revealed in his book an ingenious way to stop long-winded telephone callers. Day suggests you hang up while you are talking. <laughs> the, o- the, other party will <laughs> the other party will think you were accidentally cut off because no one would hang up on themselves. <laughs> We, we really can't see each other if we have any agenda at all. If we're wanting to get away because we have something more important to do, or if we're wanting somebody to pay attention to us, we can't really see who's there. Now, this is a, a story that was written by somebody who got stuck in that kind of thing, stuck in a kind of a role where he wasn't seeing so much. And I think it's a wonderful one. This is an intern, and he says, part of my work was to travel around in teams examining patients. I would notice their look as we entered, intimidated, apprehensive, feeling like case studies of various illnesses. I hated that, but I was an intern. I remember one guy distinctly, however, who was altogether different. I think this guy changed my life. He was an African-American man in his 60s, very sweet, very mischievous, and very sick. What brought us repeatedly to him was the utter complexity of his illness, condition on top of condition, and the mystery of why he was still alive. It was so strange. We were visiting not to find out what was wrong with him, but why he was still here at all. I had the feeling he could see right through us. He'd say, hey boys, when we come in, the way you might to a gang of ten-year-olds coming barging in your house for a snack in the middle of an intense game outside. He was so pleased and so amused. It made some people nervous. I was intrigued. But for some weeks, I never had a chance to be alone with him. Now and then, he'd get into very serious trouble, and he'd be moved into intensive care. Then he'd rally to everyone's amazement, and we'd move him back. And we'd visit him again, and he'd say, You boys here again? Pretending to be surprised that we were still around. (laughs) One night, there was an emergency, and I took the initiative and went to see him alone. He looked pretty bad. But he came alert a few seconds after I entered. He gave me a grin and said, Well, sort of like he'd been expecting me, like he'd known how much I'd come to love him. That does happen in hospitals. I imagine I looked a little surprised at the, Well, but we just laughed a minute, and I stood there just so taken by who he was. And then he hit me with a single remark, half a question and half a something else. Who you, he said, sort of smiling. Just that. Who you? I started to say, well, I'm a doctor, and then I just stopped cold. It's hard to describe. I just sort of went out. What happened was that all kinds of answers to his questions started going through my head. They all seemed true, but they all seemed less than true. Yeah, I'm this or I'm that, and also, but not just. And that's not the whole picture. The whole picture is. The thought process went something like that. 
Nothing remotely like that had ever happened to me, but I remember feeling very elated. It must have shown because he gave me this big grin and said, nice to meet you. His timing killed me. We talked for five minutes about this and that, nothing in particular, children, I think. At the end, I ventured to say, is there anything I can do for you? He said, no, I'm just fine. Thanks very much, doctor. And he paused for the name, and I gave it to him this time, and he grinned at me again. Really, he did, and that was it. He died a few days later, and I carry him around today. I think of him now and again in the midst of my rounds. A particular moment or a particular patient brings him back. Who you? For years I had trained to be a physician, and I almost got lost in it. This man took away my degree and then gave it back to me with and also, and also, and also, scribbled across. I'll never forget that. So much is left out when we're in some way presenting ourselves as a somebody, or taking somebody else in as a somebody, of the fullness of who we are. Even the people that we know most well kind of becomes a a static other at times in our life, and and in that way becomes distanced. We, We think of them as the memories we have of them in their recent moments, or their looks, or their behaviors. Let's just do a little reflection together, um, and we'll do a few of these, just to explore how we, how we are relating to people in our lives. <clears throat> and in this reflection, to just bring to mind somebody that you care about, somebody you're close to. And sense how you imagine them. What comes to mind when you bring them to mind? Are they a mental picture? Are you seeing them in your last encounter or a place you see them in the house in a certain location? Are you thinking of a certain behavior they do? A mood? A certain feeling you have when you think of them? Something you like or don't like? Now for a moment, just put it all down. And as we've been doing so much, really arrive right here in this moment and sense awareness that just is aware of sounds and the feelings in your body, the sensations, whatever mood is here. Aware of fear if there's fear, of quietness if there's quietness. Just aware, awake. This is who we are, wakefulness, the one who knows. And this is more who that person is than any idea that we can hold. This is who they really are. We forget that the one we're looking at is looking out with the same awareness, the same subjective wakefulness, 
experience of pleasure, unpleasantness, the longing to love, the fear of not having love. You can open your eyes if you'd like. When my son, who is now 16, was younger, I used to, as so many parents do, I used to go into his bedroom when he was sleeping and and sit there and look at him. And I did a kind of practice like this, where I'd say, who are you? And um, I'd say, okay, you're not this sweet face that I'm looking at, and you're not this breathing body, you're more than that. And you're not that um, mischievous, cute behavior that you did earlier, and you're not that uncooperative, stubborn thing you did, and you're... You know, you're none of that. I'd keep kind of stripping it away until all there was was a sense of, of consciousness, just a conscious being, loving being, being, just being. And when it was all stripped away, there was a prof- there's always this profound here-we-are feeling, the deepest kind of connection. So now he stays up way later than I do, so I never get to sit by his bed and I don't think he comes up and sits by my bed and <laughs> looks at me like that. He's probably downstairs online with 15 people at once doing instant messaging. That's their way of connecting, right? But this is really the practice of the bodhisattvas, is to begin to really see who's here. When we look deeply, who is this being? And it takes training. It takes practice, because we have such conditioning to look and see an unreal other, or to look and see somebody that can meet our needs, or that's threatening us. So it's training. Can we train to see the vulnerability in others? That's one key part of the training. How each of us are the same, we're all afraid. Every one of us. Every one of us wants to feel belonging, has fears about not belonging. So can we see beyond the presentation, if it's a little bit of bragging or a little bit of insensitivity or whatever, to that vulnerable being that's there? Father Theophane, a Christian mystic and writer, tells about visiting a wise man known never to give advice, only questions. I was told his questions could be very helpful, so I sought him out. I'm a parish priest, he said, and I'm here on retreat. Could you give me a question to meditate on? Ah, yes, he answered. My question is, what do they need? I came away disappointed. I spent a few hours with the question, writing out answers, but I finally went back to him. Excuse me, perhaps I didn't make myself clear. Your question has been very helpful, but I wasn't so much interested in thinking about my apostolate during this retreat. Rather, I wanted to think seriously about my own spiritual life. Could you give me a question for my own spiritual life? Ah, I see. Then my question is, what do they really need? (laughs) Mm. So again, let's just take a moment to reflect. Because it's a really beautiful question. This question can train our hearts and minds to look more deeply. So just, again, to bring to mind somebody in your family. 
And bring to mind someone that doesn't bring up a lot of reactivity for now. When we train, we start simpler and easier. Somebody that doesn't bring a lot of reactivity, a simple kind of caring, family or friend. What do they need? And just in the next few moments, letting a few people come to mind and just asking that question, what does this person need, really? What would make this person more happy, more whole? Part of the power of the question is we begin to sense how we're all the same. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. So this is part of the bodhisattva training, is to have the eyes to see another's needs, another's vulnerability, the eyes to see how we're the same. Now the other part of the training to see is to see the goodness, to see the beauty, to see the heart in each other. And this is the most delicious of practices, to train our eyes to really see, it's as Thomas Merton described, that the transparent divine shines through all beings. And he says, this is not just a nice idea or a story. This is true, to begin to see that. So here is a story that I love about that. And it's written by Sister Helen Morosa. And she's a nun who teaches, or was a nun, is a nun who did teach at St. Mary's School in Minnesota. She says, all 34 of my students were dear to me, but Mark Eklund was one in a million. Very neat in appearance, he had that happy-to-be-alive attitude that made even his occasional mischievousness delightful. Mark talked incessantly. I had to remind him again and again that talking without permission was not acceptable. What impressed me so much, though, was his sincere response every time I corrected him. He'd say, thank you for correcting me, sister. I don't know what to make of it. I didn't at first, but before long I became accustomed to hearing it many times a day. One morning my patience was growing thin when Mark talked once too often, and then I made a novice teacher's mistake. I looked at him and said, if you say that one more word, I'm going to tape your mouth shut. It wasn't 10 seconds later when Chuck blurted out, Mark's talking again, and if I hadn't asked any of the students to help me watch Mark, I hadn't done that, but since I had stated the punishment, I had to act on it. 
So I did. I put pieces of masking tape, a big X over his mouth, and returned to the front of the room. And as I glanced at Mark to see how he was doing, he winked at me. <laughs> that, that did it. I started laughing. The class cheered, and I walked back to Mark's desk, removed the tape, and shrugged my shoulders. Of course, his first words were, thank you for correcting me, sister. <laughs> at the end of the year, I was asked to teach junior high math. The years flew by, and before I knew it, Mark was in my classroom again. Since he had to listen carefully to my instructions in the new math, he didn't talk quite as much as in, in ninth grade as in third. One Friday, things just didn't feel right. We had worked hard on a new concept all week, and I sensed the students were frustrated with themselves and edgy with one another, and I had to stop this crankiness before it got out of hand. So I asked them to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. Then I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish the assignment, and as the students left the room, each one handed me the papers. Charlie smiled. Mark said, thank you for teaching me, sister. Have a good weekend. That Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate piece of paper, and I listed what everyone else had said about that individual. On Monday, I gave each student his or her list, and before long, the entire class was smiling. Really, I heard whispered. I never knew that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know others liked me so much. You know, your smile, your blue eyes, the way you listen, you're always friendly. You make everything fun. You're so helpful to me. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and one another again. That group of students moved on. Several years later, I had returned from a vacation. My parents met me at the airport. As we were driving home, Mother asked the usual questions about the trip, the weather, etc., and then there was a lull in the conversation. My father cleared his throat as he usually did before something important was going to be said. The Uklands called last night, he began. Really, I said, I haven't heard from them in years. I wonder how Mark is. Dad responded quietly. Mark was killed in Vietnam. The funeral is tomorrow, and his parents would like it if you can attend. I'd never seen a serviceman in a military coffin before. Mark looked so handsome, so mature. All I could think at that moment was, Mark, I would give all the masking tape in the world if only you would talk to me. As I stood there, one of the soldiers, who was pallbearer, came up to me. Were you Mark's math teacher? He asked, and I nodded. I continued to stare at the coffin. Mark talked about you a lot, he said. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates headed back to the farmhouse, but Mark's mother and father were there, and they were waiting for me, and they said, we want to show you something. His father took a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates started to gather around us. 
Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of the desk at my home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said, and on each classmate reached into the pocketbook or wallet, showing the list. I carry this with me all the time, Vicky said. I think we all saved our list. That's when I finally sat down and cried. I cried for Mark and for all his friends who would never see him again. And I cried about the wonder of caring and the beauty of expressing it. Rachel Naomi Remen writes about blessings in a beautiful way. She says that when we recognize the spark of God in another, we blow on it with our attention and strengthen it. No matter how deeply it has been buried or for how long, when we bless someone, we touch the unborn goodness in them and wish it well. It's a beautiful bodhisattva practice, this capacity to look at each other and see the goodness and let each other know in some way. It's the gift that friends give each other. It's the gift that a parent that's a wise parent gives to their child. Sometimes it takes uh, suffering to remind us. Often it takes a kind of sense of impermanence, a recognition that we don't have so long. I know for myself, my son's 16, he'll be at home for just a couple of years. My parents are fairly old. I have a lot of friends who are seriously sick. I've lost many people. We each have that. We know that it all goes very fast, and we don't have that long. Agamandano writes, beginning today, treat everyone you meet as if he or she was going to be dead by midnight. Extend to them all the care, kindness, and understanding you can muster, and do so with no thought of any reward. Your life will never be the same again. I like that. The first retreat I ever attended uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh, at the end of it, he taught a way of presence with each other through a hug that some of you might be familiar with, where you first stand in front of somebody, and this is bowing. When we bow, it's really we're bowing to Buddha nature that's everywhere. So you look into another being's eyes and you bow. I see the divine in you. And then you hug each other, and with the first breath that you breathe together, you meditate on the uh, sense that I'm going to die. And then with the second breath, you're going to die. And then with the third And we have these precious moments together. Again, just to invite you to reflect, to close your eyes, and bring to mind someone in your life that you're going home to, that you'd like to bring this intentionality of intimacy And you can imagine this hug. Imagine being with this person and the truth of the reflection. I'm going to die and you're going to die. And we have just these moments.
and allowing yourself to sense this person's vulnerability and this person's beauty, their goodness, to really bow to their goodness. It's so beautiful when we sense what would it be like if we really let each other know. You can imagine it with this person, how this person would feel, and I'm sure you do let them know some. But to continue and in a deep way, say what's true, what you see, what you know. Stephen Levine puts it this way. He says, if you had three days to live, who would you call? What would you say? And why aren't you doing that now? So we have a habit of holding back, which is really natural. We're afraid. We get distracted. And yet we also have a desire to be close, to connect, to offer our blessings. So this bodhisattva's aspiration, may this life be of benefit, really reminds us. In going home because we are so conditioned to get distracted, to go chasing after other things, the power of this aspiration is really, really precious. Just to encourage you to explore, may whatever's happening awaken this heart-mind. May this life be of benefit to others. There are countless ways that we can offer our blessings. Countless ways. Mother Teresa says that kind words are easy to say, but their ripples are endless. Our words, our smiles, our actions, brave actions, civil disobedience, political actions, the small kindnesses, the helping hand, the prayer. It all makes a difference. This is what some children responded to. These are bodhisattva children. They say, on what really love is. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. That's one response to what is love. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. When you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. I'll just give you two more. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. You really shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget all the time. So widening the circles of compassion, we begin again in this moment, always, just this life. If we can in this moment remember, just right now, to soften and be tender, it does ripple out. The circles do widen. And the nice news is we cannot fail on the bodhisattva path. All that can happen is we can forget, right? And when we forget, 
what happens is we'll be reminded because we'll start suffering. (laughs) It always happens. We'll start feeling guilty or ashamed or afraid or nervous or like we're wasting our lives. And that little knock at the door is, ah, okay, may this too serve to awaken. We pause, we come back. And we begin to train to see within ourselves. We can see our own vulnerability, our own goodness. We get kind. If we can look at each other and see vulnerability, see goodness, we get kind. It happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth, that men and women who are married, those who are lovers, parents, friends who give each other light, often will get down on their knees, and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? It happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth. So for the last time, we'll just close our eyes, go within, And just in the silence, to let whatever arises be touched with this heart of compassion. So thank you for your kind and warm presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.